Well, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's uh, pray, and then we'll get started this morning. Father, we ask you to help us in this time uh, to understand uh, the text of Scripture before us and understand um, the importance of it for our lives. Uh, We ask that uh, our time would not be at all wasted, but it would be well spent in encouraging us in in our growth in the grace and knowledge of you. And so, Lord, we devote these next minutes to you and ask for your help and the work of the Spirit to be active in our lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, since this is the first uh, Sunday of the new year, uh, I want to postpone our, uh, our, our study in the book of Matthew, and we'll pick up next week with the baptism of Jesus. But this morning what I want to do is address the importance of the Word in our daily lives. Okay, the importance of our Word in our daily lives as believers. And I'm bringing this message to you now because, uh, as you know, this is usually the time of year uh, where some reflection is good. Uh, We're often reflecting on how the last year went. Um, Did we meet our goals? Um, Is uh, is there something that needs to change in the year to come? And and this kind of reflection is, 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 is good. Now, it doesn't just happen in our spiritual life. It usually happens in a lot of areas of our lives. So it can, be, it can be spiritual, but can also be physical. So many people begin the new year with the goal of getting in shape. It can be financial, that this is the year that, uh, that you hope to do a much better job budgeting. It can be relational. You check in and reflect on how your marriage is or maybe some other relationships. And there, are, there are a lot of areas of life where at this time of year, we are reflecting and evaluating uh, the condition of our lives. And that's a good thing. Intentionality is a good thing. And since this is the, the mindset at this time of the year, we want to talk this morning about the role of Scripture in our daily lives. Because this is usually the time of year uh, to sort of get back on the horse if we fell off uh, the previous year. So I want to address this particular topic this morning. Now, as we approach the topic, it's likely that there are three kinds of people who are listening to this message. Uh, First of all, there are probably the faithful readers of Scripture, those who have for years or for decades uh, been reading the Scriptures daily, and you will likely say amen to this sermon and continue in the task of, of, of reading faithfully. And I want you to continue in faithfully in the task of reading, but this morning... What I want you to receive from the message is an encouragement to maybe bring someone along with you. So yeah, you've been faithful, but others aren't as faithful. And I want you to see this, as we'll we'll unpack this message, as an opportunity for you to bring someone along, or maybe to borrow Paul's analogy from this passage that we're going to consider, maybe you can bring someone to the gym with you and teach them how to exercise themselves 
for godliness. So there are first the faithful readers. There are second, the, probably the, the strugglers. That is, you try cons- to read your Bible consistently every year, and, and you usually start the year with zeal, but then after a short amount of time, maybe uh, halfway through the, the book of Exodus, uh, you fall off the horse, and, and, it's, and it's an ongoing struggle for you to, to get back into it. This morning, I want to encourage you to keep fighting, to keep struggling, to not give up, but to continue to pursue what is this valuable uh, valuable aspect of our lives. And so I hope this message is a help for you. And then thirdly, there are probably those among us who are the quitters. That is, you've struggled for so long uh, that you don't even make the attempt to, to fight the fight anymore in terms of your own spiritual uh, and daily devotional walk. You're not even struggling, you have quit. And this morning, I want to encourage you to get back on the horse. And I hopefully offer some helpful ways this morning in which you can, you can, you can do that. And, and I want you to understand how important uh, this aspect of our lives is for our, for our spiritual maturity and our walk with Christ and, and, and be encouraged to get back into it this morning. So, okay, so there are three categories of people. There are the faithful readers, there are the strugglers, and there are the quitters. So we've identified these three categories. So which one are you? All right, so put yourself in one of those three categories as we think through uh, working through this particular, particular sermon. Now, the foundational text we're going to look at this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to look at a few other passages as we move on, but we're going to begin here. And I want to consider this passage and just a couple of verses from it. This actually is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Uh, the Apostle Paul moves from giving Timothy instruction as to how the church in general is to, be, uh, is to be shepherded, to now specifically how Timothy is to conduct himself. So, so the remarks of chapter 4 are really personal, from Paul's heart to Timothy's heart, and, and I, I love that we get to, to, to listen in on, uh, on, these, on, these, on these words. Now before considering chapter 4, <coughs> perhaps it's helpful to get a bit of... <coughs> excuse me, get a bit of background as we begin this book together. So Paul is unable to be present there in Ephesus <coughs> with, uh, with the believers. So what he's done is he's left Timothy in his place to sort out the things that are, that are wrong in this church. He is serving, in a sense, as Paul's representative at the church in Ephesus. And it seems, if you were to read through the book of 1 Timothy, there are a number of things that are wrong in this church. Uh, One of the things that that pops up throughout this book is the presence of false teachers, teaching things contrary to the truth. In fact, this is something Paul jumps right into after he begins the book in in chapter 1. They were carelessly teaching the law, and they weren't understanding the implications of the kinds of things they were saying. And as you go through the book, it, it seems like they thought their, their so, these false teachers thought their so-called godliness was a means to get financial gain. And so they're, 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 they're teaching and they're, they're uh, abusing folks and, 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 and receiving, uh, receiving financial gain for that. And these pursuits were causing some within the assembly to shipwreck the faith and to forsake Christianity altogether. And Paul's concerned about this danger, and so he, he tasks Timothy with this responsibility of setting things in order. There were also other struggles in this church. 
it seems that there were, oh, thanks, Jack. You know, I'm not going to believe anything that uh, anybody says negative about you anymore because this is obviously an evidence of your, of your kindness. So there were other struggles in this church as well. Uh, there, were, there were women holding teaching positions over men. There were some men serving as pastors who would need to be disciplined for their ungodliness. And Timothy would need to train up uh, a new generation of leaders for this particular congregation. There were other issues as well. There was the neglect of widows. There was gossip. There was immorality. Uh, there was the love of money. There was the arrogance of rich people. And Timothy has the responsibility to step in and set this uh, congregation in, in order. Now, what a task, huh? How would you like to be the one who's in Timothy's shoes serving in this role? In addition to all this, there was the significant challenge of Timothy's age. He was young. How young? Well, we don't know how young he was, but he was young enough that his youth would have caused him to likely be hesitant as a leader, and young enough that those who are older in the congregation probably wouldn't respect him uh, in, his, uh, in his leadership. And so he gives Timothy these instructions in chapter 4, these very personal instructions that at the same time would be read to the entire congregation as this letter was read. And I think these comments are, are gold. And, and these instructions that are found in chapter 4, in the midst of them, there are, some, there are some comments we want to draw out for our study this morning. So let's read together this chapter of, of chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, and then we'll look at a couple verses from here. Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, <clears throat> you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when you, the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So this is the responsibility Timothy has been given. He's been given the responsibility to set things in order in this church that is, that is facing difficulties and, and struggles and stubborn and disobedient. And he's young, so he feels the inadequacy of leading this congregation. But here's what Paul tells him. 
he says, don't let anyone despise you for your youth, but rather set the believers an example in godliness. In other words, here's what you're going to do, Timothy. You're going to be an example of godliness for the entire congregation to see. In fact, notice how many times in this passage he emphasizes Timothy's own personal character and walk. He says it in verse 7, train yourself for godliness. He says it in verse 12, set the believers an example. He says it in verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. He says it again in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself, for by so doing you'll save yourself and those who who hear. So how's Timothy going to turn this ship around? How's he going to begin to address these issues in the church? How's he going to overcome the obstacles of of leading these people? Well, he's going to show himself in all respects to be an example of godliness. Now, if I can rabbit trail for just a minute, we learn a valuable lesson about leadership in this text so that whether you serve as a leader in the church or whether you serve as a leader in your home or whether you serve as, a, as a, a leader over your children or you occupy some other position of influence, the valuable lesson here is this, that godliness is an indispensable part of spiritual leadership. That we can't separate our role as leaders from our responsibility to be godly. See, if Timothy had boldness, but he didn't have godliness, then he would have been just a young, pushy person that nobody would have respected. But if Timothy had godliness, and they recognized that he first gave care to his own soul, then he would have been more respected among the people and be able to be in a position of influence. Right? So as leaders, we cannot pass on to others what doesn't first exist in our own heart. Like I said, whether that's a pastor whether that's some other church leader, whether it's a parent. You, you can't pass on to someone else what doesn't exist in your own heart. You can't say, do what I, do what I say, but not what I do, because most of, of leadership is, is caught, not taught. I'm struck by this quote from a pastor one time. He said this, what's wrong with your church after five years is what's wrong with you. And I think the statement's applicable, and I think it's even more applicable in marriage, as a husband, as a leader, what's wrong in your marriage after five years is what's wrong with you. I, mean, I can look at my marriage and I can see areas that, that where, where we're weak in our marriage, they're specifically tied to my weaknesses as a spiritual leader. I mean, if I could speak to the men in here specifically, I mean, this, this is especially applicable to us as we think about leadership and the role of, of us to be leaders in our home and, and godly examples for our family. Okay? Because we can't pass on to others what doesn't first exist in our own heart. And that's, that's evident all through this, through this passage. Okay, so off the rabbit trail, now back on to the, to the main path. If godliness is so important for our lives, for the lives of those who are under our leadership, for those around us, if godliness in our lives is so important, then how is it that we cultivate personal godliness in our lives? Well, notice a couple points from this passage. First of all, notice this that the means of godliness is or are the spiritual disciplines. Okay, the means to godliness are the spiritual disciplines. Okay, notice verses 7 and 8. He says this, he says, train yourselves for, or yourself for godliness. In other words, this is how you become godly, through the faithful, consistent training 
in the spiritual disciplines. Now, if I'm going to say something discouraging this morning, it's going to be this. There are no shortcuts to godliness. There are no cutting corners to a quicker path to godliness. And as much as we'd like there to be a, a quicker path and an easier path, there is no other path, an easier path, than the means that God has given us here of the spiritual disciplines. The image that Paul uses here is that of an athlete training himself through strenuous workout. In fact, the word train that's used here in this, in this passage is where we get the word gymnasium from. Okay? And Paul here compares the Christian training in his progress for godliness as an athlete who trains for a race. Now notice a few things about what Paul says in this passage. It involves both a negative and a positive exhortation. So he says, here's what you should not do, and here's what you should do. Okay, he says, have nothing to do with irrelevant and silly myths. That is, don't give yourself to those things that are going to be a distraction to your pursuit of godliness. Now, this is often the case because, and I think the author of Hebrews picks up on this well, that we have to lay aside the, the weight and the sin which so easily distracts us. And those are two separate categories because obviously sin is sin and that distracts us from godliness. But then there are other things who are not inher- that are not inherently sinful that distract us from our pursuit of godliness. And Paul's saying in both of those categories need to be set aside. Don't give yourself to things that are going to be irrelevant and not aid you in godliness. And definitely don't give yourself to sin, but rather discipline yourself in the pursuit of, of godliness. Okay, devote your things to, and he says what we should do, devote yourself to those things that are, that are going to help you run effectively. Now notice he also says in this passage that training for godliness, it holds incomparable value. Like consider verse 8 again in, in this passage. He says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul's point here is not to say the bodily exercise has no value. Of course it has value. But what he's saying is its value pales in comparison to the value of pursuing godliness. Physical fitness benefits you in this life. Godliness benefits us in this life and in the life to come. Okay, it's a value as we live in the freedom of life and pleasing Christ today. And it has value as we will stand before the Lord and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, so this is to be the pursuit of every believer. We're to train ourselves, to discipline ourselves in the pursuit of godliness. Now, the way in which we do this is often referred to as the spiritual disciplines, such as our prayer life, our our Bible reading, our our meditation, our, our, our corporate worship, our evangelism, these are the activities that are the, that are the means to making us more like Christ. That word means is important. Okay? It's the means to making us godly. Notice secondly in this passage that the spiritual disciplines do not equal godliness. The spiritual disciplines do not equal godliness. Rather, they are the means to godliness. Okay? Because it's easy for us to think, that our faithfulness to church or our faithfulness to our Bible reading or our faithfulness to prayer equals godliness 
or that because we've read or because we've attended that we are godly. Okay, there's, there, there, are, there are YouTube videos of, of people who attend the gym and they don't know how to use the equipment that's, that's in the gym. And they're usually like comical videos of people using some machine to do something that it was never uh, designed to do. And uh, it gets a lot of laughs and gets a lot of likes. But a person can, can attend regularly the gym, not use equipment in the, the way it's designed to use, and receive no benefit from, from being there, right? So, so mere showing up to church or mere opening our scriptures does not mean that, that we are godly or doesn't equal physical fitness or spiritual fitness. And, and it's, it's similar here that, that the spiritual disciplines don't equal godliness. They are the path or the means to getting us toward our growth in godliness. So the training is not the godliness. The godliness is the result of the training. Okay, thirdly, we see here this, that the spiritual discipline is not self-effort, or it's different from what we think of when we think of self-effort, okay? When we think about our need for the spiritual disciplines, we have to be careful to draw a distinction between spiritual discipline and mere self-effort, okay? Now, to be clear, our growth in our godliness, it demands effort on our part, okay? It's, it's, it's not solely our effort that brings godliness, nor does our effort come from ourselves, rather spiritual discipline and training for godliness, it's, it's spirit-driven effort, if we, want to, if we can think about it that way. Okay? Our, the spiritual disciplines are not what we often refer to as Nike sanctification, where you just do it. Like you, you just read your Bible and growth will happen. You, you just pursue prayer and growth will happen. But rather, we, we don't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Far from it, okay? That self-effort does not bring godliness, okay? It is our growth in godliness that is driven by the Spirit's work that produces godliness in our lives. So you're familiar with this verse, and I won't have you turn there, but I'll, I'll, I'll uh, just unpack it for you. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Where Paul, Paul says, Work out your own salvation, or your sanctification, with fear and trembling. And then he says, For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay? So we exert effort and energy in our sanctification, in our growth and godliness. But that effort doesn't originate with us. He says, work out your own salvation, but it's God who's at work in you to both desire and produce this growth in, in godliness. So John Owen says it this way, God works in us and with us not against us or without us. Okay, so we don't just simply let go and let God and hope that we become sanctified, but rather we, we use our efforts and God is, is, is motivating and, and working those efforts out. Uh, Michael Riccardi in his book, um, Sanctific- I think it's just called Sanctification, he has three points in, in, in three different chapters that he, he unpacks that I think are so incredibly helpful for us in thinking about what it means to grow in godliness. He says, first of all, that sanctification or our growth in godliness is fundamentally internal and supernatural. It's fundamentally internal and supernatural. In other words, it's not simply about conforming to an outward standard, 
but it's first of all a change in our heart that is to be taking place. So you remember Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice that he doesn't say, do not be conformed to this world, and then Paul says, but be conformed to Christianity, as, it's just a, as if it's just a matter of like outward conformity to a set of standards. Okay? That's not what our growth in godliness is. No, he says, be transformed from the inside out. Okay, growth in godliness is internal before it is ever external. And so if holiness was about conformity to external standards, we wouldn't need the supernatural power of God. We just would need more self-effort, more discipline. But it is first internal change, so we need God's work in us to change us uh, in our fundamental disposition. Secondly, Riccardi says, sanctification is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. That, that sanctification is something that God is doing in our hearts. Right? Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Okay? That God is the agent of sanctification. And I think we recognize this. When, when, we, when we accomplish something good or we're faithful in an area or we have some victory, we don't turn around and say, well, look what I was able to accomplish. We say, look, but by God's grace, he has allowed me to accomplish in, in this life. Because we recognize that any good that comes from us has been, has been worked through us by God and his, and his spirit. The third thing Riccardi says is this. And this, is, this is important for our study this morning. He says that the spirit employs means in sanctifying the believer. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky, right? On the one hand, we see that growth in godliness is, is internal and it's a supernatural work of God. But then on the other hand, we see statements like, work out your own salvation and discipline yourself for godliness. Are we contradicting ourselves? Okay, which is it? Is it God's work or is it our work? Well, we should understand it this way. That God is the one who is at work in our sanctification, and the way in which he sanctifies us is to employ specific means for our growth in godliness. So we are not passive in our growth. We are active. And it, we're putting ourselves on the path for God to sanctify us and to do the work in us. Now, the, God has given us a number of means to, to sanctify us, gives us the scriptures which are profitable for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He gives us prayer, which B.B. Warfield describes as the very adjustment of our heart for the influx of grace. He gives us the fellowship of other believers. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, Proverbs 21, or 27, 17 says. And in, in, in God's providence, he brings trials into our lives which sanctify us, Okay, remember what James says, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect. We're perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That God uses all of these things to, to sanctify us and to grow us in the grace of the Lord. There's a Puritan, Henry Scogel, has this quote, and I think this is really helpful. He says, All the art and industry of a man cannot from the smallest herb cannot form the smallest herb or make the stock of corn to grow in the field. 
It is the energy of nature and the influence of heaven which produces this effect. It is God who causes the grass to grow and the herb for the service of man. And yet, he says, nobody will say that the labors of the farmer are useless or unnecessary. In other words, when we talk about planting grass or getting grass to grow, we, we make effort maybe in the, in the spring to do something like that, but we recognize that we don't possess any power in ourselves to, to create grass or to, to, to make it grow. There are things we do. We put water on it. We try to make the soil fertile. But it's, it's ultimately God and his power and work that, that makes grass grow. And yet no one would say that our efforts are, are unimportant because we, we devote ourselves to the means to make grass grow. But it's God who is the one who, who causes these things to happen. And it's the same in our spiritual lives. God is at work in us. We do what we can do, and we use the means that God has given us to grow in godliness, but it is ultimately God who is the one who brings about godliness in our lives. Okay, so this is, this is sort of foundational for where we wanna, where we wanna emphasize, what we want to emphasize here this morning. In the time we have remaining, I want to emphasize one particular spiritual discipline, and that is the role of Bible intake in our life. Okay, so that's where I want to focus our attention in the remaining minutes uh, that we have here. The role of Bible intake in our lives. It's been said that as a man's devotional life goes, so does his spiritual life. Just think about that particular statement. As a man or woman's devotional life goes, so does his or her spiritual life. If this is true, there's nothing more important than our daily devotional walk with God. And yet, in spite of how tremendously important it is, it's often something we find extremely hard to fit into our daily lives and and find it extremely hard to be consistent and disciplined in our time. We've probably all begun January with some great zeal, and then somewhere we fry out in the middle of another sacrifice in Leviticus uh, because we don't have the energy to get through it. And so we quit, and so we fizzle out in our devotional life. And, and I want to submit to you this morning that this has a greater damage to our spiritual life than we might realize initially. Okay, what we're going to see is over the long haul, this type of lack of discipline does great damage to our soul. Okay, so one of the ways that we continue to fuel consistent devotional life is we have to remember how important it is for our spiritual life. So let me give you a few, few reasons why we should devote ourselves to consistent Bible reading and prayer this morning. We're specifically focusing on Bible reading. The first reason is this. The daily reading of Scripture is commended in Scripture. Okay, the daily reading of Scripture is commended in the Scriptures. So Psalm 1, perhaps the most famous passage, is that passage that addresses this matter. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Again, here's what you have to avoid in the pursuit of something else. But what does he say? He says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates when? Day and night. 
Okay, what the author, uh, the psalmist is doing here is he's emphasizing the importance of Bible intake on a daily basis. Okay, Psalm 119.97 says something similar. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. We're just talking about Bible reading. We're not even talking about meditation, but these passages are talking about meditation, which is a step beyond just mere reading. Okay, and in Psalm 1, the picture of the person who meditates day and night on the Scriptures is the, de- is the person described in these words. Listen. They are a tree planted by streams of water. They yield fruit in their season, and all that they do prospers. Okay, this is a picture of spiritual stability. And the connection is it's the person who devotes themselves daily to the Scriptures. So the Bible commands us to, 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 to day and night take in the Word. Now that alone should suffice for motivation, right? Like, well, the Bible says it, that settles it, now I'll, I'll do it. But, but we often need more convincing. Okay, so let's, let's take it a little bit, a little bit further. The daily reading of Scripture has the long-term effect of shaping our heart. Okay, listen to that again. The daily reading of Scripture has the long-term effect of shaping our heart. Okay, when I use the word heart intentionally, okay, Proverbs 4.32 talks about the heart. Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. The heart is is not the, the organ that pumps blood to, to the rest of your body, although that is the heart. Spiritually speaking, the heart it refers to your inner man, the, the non-physical part of you. It's the core of our, our personhood. It's the part of our person we cannot see, but it expresses, it's expressing what we do and, and how we live. And our daily worship in the Scriptures has a long-term effect on shaping our inner man, or shaping our heart. It, it, and it, that, that word long-term is, is, is key here. Because you don't see the effects of the word on your life immediately all the time, but over the long haul, you, you see how the word shapes your heart. It's like, like exercise. Okay? You don't see the results immediately, but after long-term devotion to it, you begin to see how 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 visible the results are. So one of my favorite hobbies, as, as you probably know, is, is to play golf. All right? And when I was a boy, my dad would take me out and we would play golf and we were really bad. I mean like really bad. We could only play nine holes because we didn't have enough stamina or skill to play a full 18 holes. And the thought of 18 holes was miserable because we were so burnt out after the first nine holes. And uh, those were painful experiences. When I turned 18, my dad informs me one day, that he did this a lot, but he informed me that I got you a job. Okay, that was my dad's, one of my dad's famous statements. He was always getting me and my brother a job, <laughs> much to the dismay of the people for whom we worked. Because uh, I did shoot my boss in the back of a nail, the neck with a nail gun on my very first day of, uh, of work. But this is a different job that I'm referencing this morning. So I turn 18 and my dad says, I got you a job. And it was working maintenance at a private country club just one mile from our house. And it came with this perk of like free unlimited golf provided I play at the right time. Well, I, it's safe to say I abused that privilege 
I mean, I, I severely abused that privilege. I would get done with work at three and sneak out just before the leagues, go home and eat dinner, and then come back after the leagues and, and just, just play. I mean, like when I was 18 to 21, I was playing like six to seven times a week. I was playing golf, like no girlfriend. I lived one mile from this course, and I just played golf, and I, and I slept. Now, when you play that, when you play that much, you, you tend to get a little bit better. My problem is I have 20 years of bad habits ingrained in my, in my swing, and so it is what it is. But, but when they have this statement, when you talk about getting better at golf, there's a phrase that goes something like this. There's no substitute for playing consistently. Okay? You, have to, you have to do it often to, to solidify the habits, to, 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 to keep up the skills. Okay? My dad has a friend. Uh, he's, a, he's a really funny guy. That he reads so much on golf. He has so much knowledge about golf, but he never plays consistently. It just doesn't translate into his, into his, uh, into his swing. Now, so, sometimes as a pastor, members will find out that you like to golf, and they, they say, hey, I like to go. We should, we should go play sometime. I say, hey, that would, that would be great. But then they make this statement. They say, I should probably go to the driving range and hit a few golf balls before. And I'm going, oh, man, I know where this is going. Because if you never play, that one five or ten minute driving range session is probably not going to do much for, for, the, for the golf game, right? It takes consistency to, to, to improve. But see, this is how many people approach the scriptures. Something comes up in life. There's some sort of an emergency. They want to know an answer to some question. So it's like, hey, I should check out the Bible. I should open up the scriptures and look for some answer. But when we, when we approach the Bible like that, and that's the only time we, we approach the scriptures, we are missing the fundamental intention of God's word. And that is to, over the long haul, have our hearts shaped by the truth of Scripture. Okay? So it's like if we read the Bible like we're just going to the driving range every two or three years to see if we can improve in some skill, it's not going to happen. It's, it's only through consistent devotion to, to the Word that our hearts are shaped over the, over the long haul. Okay? This is how the Scriptures work. As we're exposed to them daily... They have a long-term shaping effect on on the men and women of God. And we often don't see the results immediately. But over the long period, we begin to think differently. We begin to act differently because of how God's Word is at work in us. Now, last point. The daily reading of Scripture shapes our understanding of of right and wrong. (coughs) Turn over to Psalm 119, if you would. I want to finish here because this is, I think, perhaps an often misunderstood passage of Scripture. Psalm 119. And pick up with me in verses 9 to 11. It says, How can a young man Keep his way pure. And here's the answer. By guarding it, the way, according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This this passage begins with the golden question, right? Verse 9. 
How is it that I keep my path, my way, pure? How is it that I, I avoid sin? This is a question I think we're always asking, right? How, how is it that we walk in purity? And the answer in this passage is by immersing ourselves in God's Word. But at this point, we need to be clear because the Scriptures are not like this magic potion that we throw at temptation and then it just goes away whenever we're presented with it. Because that's sometimes the, the, the way in which verse 11 gets used. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, and it becomes this strong emphasis on Scripture memorization. And Scripture memorization is good. It's good to memorize Scripture. Um, but the emphasis of this passage is, is, is different. Notice he does not say, I have stored up your word in my head that I might not sin against you. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart. The difference there, what the psalmist is saying is, I have been so devoted to your word that it has had a long-term shaping effect on my inner man so that when temptation presents itself, my heart is already shaped and, and guarded. Okay? I was, I was going to take us to, to, to Proverbs uh, 7, but I, I won't do that for the sake of time. But I'd rather I'll take us to the, to the, um, to the, the famous Sinclair Ferguson quote that he, that he says. He says that the danger spot for the Christian is when desire intersects with opportunity. Okay, so I've got, the, I've got sinful desires, but I might not have the opportunity to gratify them, and so I can, I can kind of get by. But when my sinful desires intersect with an opportunity to sin, Sinclair Ferguson says, then you are a dead man walking. Okay? Now, this is the emphasis here on, on verse 19. And I want to be clear to say this, that sinful desires are wrong, and sinful actions are wrong as well. He's not saying you're doing fine as long as you don't have the opportunity. Rather, what he's saying is we have to fight our, our temptation to sin on, on both levels. We have to be fighting against the sinful desires, and we have to be guarding against the opportunities. But you can't always control the opportunities, so you may have to make sure you're guarding your heart so that when the opportunities present themselves, that, that we don't end up um, gratifying those sinful desires and the opportunities that are presented themselves. But notice what, what verse 11 is saying here. It's saying that we... we, we give ourselves to the devotion of Scripture so that it, it controls and protects and, and shapes our heart so that when the opportunities present themselves, they don't become as strong a temptation because our hearts have been guarded and shaped by the truth of Scripture. That's, that's what it means here, what it says, I've stored up your word in my heart, that, that over the long haul, I have been guarded and shaped by the truth of God's word. And so I would say this, that we cannot overemphasize the importance of the daily exposure to God's Word in our life. In other words, it would be hard for me to get up here and, and overemphasize this because of how important it is in our lives as believers. Now, as you know, this is a popular time of year to get a gym membership. You can get one at, at Planet Fitness for $10 a month. And it comes with the great benefit of being in a judgment-free zone, all right? So guarantee no one will judge you if you, uh, if you work out at Planet Fitness. I almost judged someone one time, and then I remembered. 
this is a judgment-free zone. What are, what are you even doing, you know? And so um, it's a busy time of the year at the gym, uh, but in a few months, it'll go back to normal, and it won't be as busy. The question is, why? Why don't people last in their effort to work out? I think there's three key reasons why this is the case. Number one, they don't have a plan. Okay, so they walk into the gym, and the first time it can be intimidating. They call this gym intimidation. All right, and uh, there are all these weights, there are all these machines, and you don't know how they work. So you're like, well, I'll just do the treadmill. All right, well that gets boring after like the first three times, and so you're like, well, okay, I'm not, I'm not sticking with this. And then there's, because there's no plan. All right. Secondly. You have to persevere long enough for it to become a habit. So everyone knows that getting into shape is a painful experience. And sometimes your body's saying, what are you doing to me? Right? This was much better when we just sat on the couch and ate. You know? and, and so, but you have, to, you have to work at it long enough that you get through the initial pain of it so that it becomes a habit and something that you, you might actually enjoy. Okay, but, but people don't stick with it long enough and persevere long enough that it becomes a habit or a routine. The last thing that I think is, is helpful and why people don't stick to it is because they don't have a partner. Okay, you need accountability. Someone to motivate you and, and sort of get you off the couch when you, don't feel like, when you don't feel like doing so. And you eventually get to the point where you enjoy it. And maybe the accountability is not even as, as important anymore. Okay, so, so Pastor Curry and I, we used, to, we used to work out together and I had this vivid memory last night of, of him forgetting his gym shoes. Uh, and so he's there in his athletic shorts, his, his white tall socks and, and his tan loafers uh, that, he was, that he had been wearing that morning. And so I snapped a picture and I texted his whole family and, uh, and, and they appreciated it. Didn't tell him that I was doing that though, right? He was a good partner. We, we, we would work out together and, and hold each other accountable in that way. Now, the reason Paul uses the analogy of exercise when he's talking about spiritual disciplines here and the pursuit of godliness is because the, the, the relationship is, is so fitting. The analogy is so fitting, <clears throat> right? So in order for our devotional life to stick, these same three principles apply. We need a plan, okay? If you don't have a plan for how you're going to attack the reading of Scripture, then most of us will burn out somewhere in the first month or two, okay? We have made, on the back table there as you, as, you, as you leave, we've made several Bible reading plans available so that you can have a plan and, and attacking it. Secondly, you have to persevere long enough for it to become a habit, okay? You have to get past the stage where it feels like a drudgery to the point where it becomes a habit and something you treasure and enjoy and become dependent on. And then thirdly, you have to have a partner. Uh, a faithful friend will make all the difference in your pursuit of reading through the Scriptures. They can motivate you. You can motivate them. And if you have these three things, then Lord willing, you'll be on the path to grow in godliness this year as you faithfully seek to read Scripture. All right, so let's go back to our three categories. <clears throat> if you are a faithful reader here this morning, and you've read for years and decades just about every day, 
then my encouragement to you this morning would be to bring someone else along with you. Bring them to the gym and teach them how to exercise in godliness. If you are a struggler or a quitter, then I want you to consider these three points. You need a plan, you need to persevere in it, and you need a partner to help you persevere in that. If you can get these three things long enough, then I think it will become a habit and benefit us in our walk this year. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the time we've been able to consider in in these passages of Scripture this morning. We ask that this message would serve us well in the year ahead to become more devoted in our pursuit of godliness and our faithfulness to the Word and in prayer. And Lord, may you use our brothers and sisters here to be an encouragement to another toward greater godliness in this area and help us uh, to have our hearts shaped uh, over the long haul by the truth of Scripture through the work of your Spirit. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.